Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, if you want to stand in honor of God's Word this morning. We're going to look at two miracles that Jesus performs here in Luke chapter 7. And as we look at these today, I want you to notice how he displays himself as the Lord of life. Because again, the book of Luke is answering one major question. One major question in the book of Luke. Who is Jesus? Because what we know about Jesus will determine how we follow him. Who we know him to be will determine how we follow him. So I want you to notice who Jesus is portrayed to be here in Luke chapter 7. Beginning there in verse 1. The word of the Lord says, And after he, Jesus, had finished all of his sayings or his teachings there in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is going to become the base of operations for Jesus' ministry there in Galilee. Before he makes headway toward Jerusalem in the coming chapters, his base of operations for his ministry is located there in Capernaum. And a lot happens there. So this is one of the miracles there in the city of Capernaum. And now a centurion, that's a Roman soldier who was over a hundred other soldiers. He was a, a fairly well up, kind of like a captain in the, in the army is what you want to think about. He was a little bit up the ladder in terms of his position. A centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews and asked him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly. And listen, listen to their reasoning why Jesus should come and do what the centurion is asking. They pleaded with him and said, He is worthy. You might underline that word in your Bible. We're going to notice that word here in just a minute. He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. He built our place of worship. He loves us. You should go and heal his servant. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy. You might underline that word worthy there again. Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to the one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. There's another key word, marveled, you might underline. We'll come back to it in a minute. He marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. Now, if Capernaum is the center of Jesus' ministry there in Galilee, Nain is an out-of-the-way place. No one's ever heard. It's like a McQuady. No one's ever heard of McQuady. Before I came here 13 years ago, I had no idea where McQuady, Kentucky was. That's what Nain is. Capernaum, everybody's heard of. Nain, nobody's heard of. He went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. She, so she's lost her husband, now she's lost her son. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, see the heart of Jesus here, when the Lord 
saw her. He had compassion on her. There's another key word, compassion. We'll come back to it in a minute. He had compassion on her and he said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the bier and the bearers stood still and he said to him, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. That's an understatement. You've been to a funeral like this recently? Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Father God, as we dive into your word this morning, I pray that you might help us to see who Jesus is. There is nothing greater that I might put on display for your people this morning, Lord, than to put Jesus on display. Help us to see him for who he is, the Lord of life, who came for all the peoples of the earth, not just Jews, but Gentiles too. Not just the rich, but the poor as well. Help us to see His heart of compassion. Help us to see His great authority. Help us to see that He is the author of life. And in Him we live and move and have our being. And Lord, as we heard and sang just a few moments ago, Father, today, would you break our heart for what breaks yours and give us a heart like Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm entitled today's message, The Lord of Life. As we see Jesus here in these two miracles, one toward a man who was sick to the point of death. He was approaching death's door when Jesus brings healing to him from a distance. And then we encounter a man who has already died, and Jesus gets up close and personal with him in one of the most dramatic miracles in all of the gospel. But in both cases, what we're seeing is that Jesus is the Lord of life. But he's the Lord of life in such a way that he doesn't stay away from suffering. We find Jesus regularly interacting with those who are in the most intense places of suffering. For instance, when Jesus encountered a leper a couple of chapters ago in a portion of scripture we were, didn't have time uh, to get to in this series when Jesus encountered a leper and he went up and he touched the leper he was doing what no one else would do in that day you didn't touch a leper because it would make you unclean and you yourself might be subject to that horrible disease of leprosy which made you an utter social outcast but Jesus was not fearful to go to touch the leper Jesus was not fearful to go and to touch the lame man. And we're going to see here this morning, Jesus was not fearful to go and to touch a dead man as he was bringing him to life. 
Jesus was constantly running into places where suffering people were abiding. In our culture, in 21st century American Christianity, we are taught to build cocoons of our own comfort. Safe spaces. Where we don't have to interact with the suffering around us. And the more comfortable you are, the more valuable you are in terms of what our culture sees. But our Savior says, in this life you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Suffering is a reality. And for some of you this morning, you came in in a place of suffering. For some of you, you've been recently through a season of suffering. And for others, you may not know it yet, but you're entering into a time of suffering in the months to come. You say, well, pastor, how do you know that? Because it's the regular rhythm of life in a sin-tainted world. Because of what happened in Genesis chapter 3, when we rebelled against our good and holy God and sought to go our own way in our own sin and do our own thing apart from Him, because of our sinful rebellion against God, everything in our world is ruptured. It's broken. It's not as God intended it to be. So we encounter illness. We encounter poverty. We encounter sickness and death and grief and suffering. Writing out of the most intense season of grief that he ever experienced at the death of his own wife, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, he wrote a book called A Grief Observed. And I want to encourage you, if you've not read this book, it's a tiny book, even if you're like Brian and you hate to read, A Grief Observed, it's a little book. It's one of these powerful little books that C.S. Lewis wrote this as a result of the death of his wife. She suffered for many years with a, a chronic illness and finally died. And he wrote this little book, and he said this in A Grief Observed. We were promised sufferings. They were a part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn. By the way, that's Matthew 5, 4. That comes from the lips of Jesus in the Beatitudes. Blessed are they that mourn. And he says, and I accept it. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. Of course, it is a different thing when the thing happens to oneself, not to others. And in reality, not imagination. Some of you have walked through those seasons when the unthinkable occurs. The death of a loved one, the diagnosis that should have belonged to somebody else, the loss of a job, a home, relationship. You've been through those things. You remember those times of suffering. And I want you to see this morning in the Scriptures a Savior who is acquainted, who is intimately acquainted with our grief. He does not hold our suffering at arm's length, but He draws near to us in our suffering and does something about it. Let's start this morning in verses 1 through 10. We see Jesus 
the worthy one. I encourage you to underline the word worthy as we walked through these verses a moment ago because it's the key idea here. Who is worthy is the, is the subtext of this particular miracle. And you see in this miracle, as we'll see in the next one, there are three primary characters or groups of characters, if you will, in these two miracles. The first one is the crowd. And what does the crowd say about who is worthy? Look at verses 4 and 5. And what you're going to see is this, that the crowd wrongly connects great worth with good works. So the centurion sends word, please have Jesus come and heal my servant. He's very valuable to me. I love him deeply. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly. And this is what they said of the centurion. He is worthy to have you do this for him. Why? Because he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. He built our place of worship. Now, it was not unusual in that day for the Romans to make a financial investment in the worship of other peoples in order to keep uh, the rebellions down. Let's make some financial investments here and there so that those that are under our rule and reign will be more or less likely to rebel against us. That's not the picture here. This centurion did not just make a financial investment. He actually did the labor in the building of the synagogue. He was hands-on in the work. And so they said, this is a worthy man. Church, beware. Just like this crowd. We have such a tendency to measure the worth of people based upon their works. Well, he's worthy. Look at all the degrees that he has achieved. Well, she's worthy. Look at how successful her business has been. Well, they are worthy. Look how good their kids are. We could go on and on with the list of accolades that we might use to establish the worth of people. And yet, when you look into the scriptures, you see that the measuring stick that God uses in terms of our worthiness has absolutely nothing to do with our works. Let me say that to you again in case you missed it. In a culture that constantly measures people based upon what you've done or not done, how much you've earned or not earned, what degrees you've attained or not attained, let me say to you without any hesitation this morning that God's measuring stick has nothing to do with your works. Well, you say, well, what worth do I have then? Here's how the scriptures measure your worth. Genesis chapter 1 says that God created us all male and female and created us in His image. Translation, you were created to reflect the glory of God in the world that He created. 
We were created to reflect the glory of God, to be a demonstration of the glory, the beauty, the grandeur of God in His creation. And for that reason alone, because of the way you were created, before you had done anything, because of the way that you were created, you had worth in the sight of God. And by the way, that's why the baby in the womb has worth in the sight of God. That's why we as the people of God ought to be upholding to our dying breath the value of children in the womb in a culture that is continuing to practice the atrocity of abortion, not because it's a political issue. Let me go where Grant went a few minutes ago. Abortion is not a political issue. Abortion is a theological issue because our God creates life and He is the only one that has the right to snuff it out and He has the right to snuff out all of our lives because of our rebellion against Him but chose in His grace to take the death that should have been ours and to put it upon the author of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might have life in Him. That's how gracious and good He is. But just like this crowd, we can so easily fall back into the mindset. I call this the good old boy syndrome. Well, he's a good guy. She's a good girl. And the Bible says, no, garbage. Romans chapter 3, there's none who is righteous. No, not one. All of us have turned away. The works, the only works that, that measured anything according to our relationship with God was our sinful works, which separated us from Him. Those were negatives in our category. There were no positives. And then Jesus came along and took all our negatives upon Himself and granted to us, credited to our account, the riches of His glory that He alone deserved. It's grace. And so church, let's be careful that we don't fall into what our culture in this crowd did, measuring the worth of people based upon their works. Let's look at the centurion. The centurion then in response rapidly contested his worth in humble submission to the Lord. He denies his own worth. They're saying he's worthy, he's worthy, he's worthy. Look at verse 6. And so Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion, he doesn't send Jewish, Jewish friends, he doesn't send the elders this time or the crowds. He sends some intimate friends. That's the picture here. He sends some of his close friends to say on his behalf, Lord, notice how he addresses Jesus. He addresses him as Lord. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am what? Not worthy. I'm not worthy, Lord, to even have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but just say the word and let my servant be healed. So while the Jewish elders are saying he's worthy, he's worthy, the centurion says, no, I'm not worthy. I'm not even worthy to have you come into my house, much less have you do what I'm asking you to do. Don't do it because of my worth. Do it because of your worth. It's a whole different picture. See, a couple of things culturally that are happening there. First of all, for a Jew to enter into the home of a Gentile would make them 
ceremonially unclean. They would have to make special sacrifices in that regard, and there would be a lot of things. It was to the point by the time that in Acts chapter 10, when, when Peter is, is called by God to go to the home of the Gentile Cornelius, as he gets to Cornelius' doorstep, he begins the conversation by saying, Listen, man, this is my paraphrase, by the way, what I'm about to do is illegal in entering into your home. So just want you to know, God's brought me here. That's the only reason I'm here. And he enters in, and the gospel goes to the Gentiles from that point forward. And we're all recipients of that, by the way. I don't know that any of us here are of Jewish heritage, so praise be to God that God loves all the peoples of the world. So this Gentile centurion saying, I'm not worthy. We see his humble submission to Jesus as Lord, even in the way he begins to talk about his authority. Look at what he says. I didn't presume to come to you, but just say the word, let my servant be healed. Verse 8. For I too, just like you, he said, just like you, Jesus, I'm a man set under authority. Notice he doesn't begin by proclaiming that he has authority over others, though he had the charge over a hundred Roman soldiers. That's what a centurion meant. He had charge over a hundred men. He doesn't begin by proclaiming his authority over others. He begins by proclaiming that he's a man set under authority. That shows his humility. Jesus, too, showed his humility in this when he constantly recognized that he was under the authority of the Father. He said, I can do nothing that the Father has not given me to do. The Father had something for him to do in the home of the centurion. He said, I'm in under authority. And when I say to one of those that are under me, when I say go, he goes. When I say come, he comes. When I say do this, he does it. He understood what authority meant. By the way, believers, if we're going to live under the authority of Jesus Christ, when he says go, you better go. When he says come, you better come. And when he says do this, you better do it. Not out of some, uh, some bland obligation toward the Lord, but because your heart has been rescued by Christ for the glory of God. And so you, out of love for him, you want to walk in obedience to his commands. And then we see Christ. Christ who then readily confirms his own worth by his words and his works. He proved that the worthy one was not the centurion. He affirmed the very thing that the centurion was trying to put forward, which is the only worthy one, the only one worthy of worship in this picture is Jesus the Christ. Notice Jesus' response. When Jesus heard what the centurion had sent to be said, he marveled at him. By the way, we see people marveling all over the Gospels, standing in awe, surprised, amazed, uh, their socks blown off, if you will. We see that all over the Gospel. There's only two times, though, when it's Jesus. One is right here in Luke chapter 7 marveling at the faith of this Gentile Roman soldier. The other one, you might just kind of jot down there, Mark 6, verse 6. 
Mark 6, verse 6 occurs in Jesus' own hometown of Nazareth. Jesus has just finished teaching there in the synagogue at Nazareth, and his heart's desire would have been to have healed and done miracles there in his hometown, just like he would do in Capernaum, just like he would do in various other places. But it says in Mark chapter 6, verse 6, that when Jesus looked out after teaching the Word of God, he looked out desiring to do miracles, to heal and to do the same kinds of things we're seeing here in Luke chapter 7. When Jesus looks out, he says he looked out at his own townspeople, and he marveled at their unbelief. Two times when Jesus marveled. One was at the faith of this Gentile Roman soldier who had no reason to have this kind of faith. And one was at the unbelief, the lack of faith of his own Jewish townspeople who had every reason to believe. By the way, church, this reminds us that faith is the gift of God. Faith is not something that you well up in of yourself. Ephesians chapter 2 is very clear. The only reason that you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you have faith in Jesus Christ this morning, is because God has been gracious enough to open your blind eyes and your deaf ears. And it's the same thing for this pastor. The only reason that you have any faith in Jesus Christ whatsoever is because he took that stone-cold heart that was, was lodged in your chest and he replaced it with a heart of flesh that now beats for him. The only reason that faith comes to those who believe is because it's the gift of God. We need to know that. Otherwise, we will be quick to make faith a work that we somehow accomplished and proclaiming our own worthiness in it. Look how faithful I have been. No, it's how faithful Christ has been. That's what matters. He's the worthy one. Revelation 4 Worthy are you, we read this a little while ago, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And so Jesus, in his love and compassion toward all mankind, responds to the request of this centurion on behalf of his servant, and the love of Christ for that dying servant was greater than the love of the centurion could ever have hoped to be. He valued the life of that dying servant more than his master, the centurion, could have ever begun to do. This is Jesus, the worthy one. And secondly, in the second miracle this morning, we see Jesus, our compassionate king. Again, the key word is compassion. That Jesus looked at her and had compassion on this woman, this widow, who had already lost her husband at some time past, and now has lost her only son. And, and I know uh, that, that we can maybe experience some of the grief of that, but I don't think that we fully understand the gravity of it. Because in that culture... To be a woman who had lost your husband and now lost your only son meant this. You had nothing. You had no ability in a culture like that to provide for yourself in any way. Everything in your life was forfeit. She had no means to provide for herself. Now she had no husband. She had no son. She was left utterly 
destitute. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. I want you to think about the scene for a moment. Jesus has just been in Capernaum. The center of his Galilean ministry. Things are happening, man, right and left. Miracles are happening. Teachings are happening. Uh, things are buzzing. And then Jesus all of a sudden decides, I'm leaving Capernaum and going to Nain. Again, what in the world? Jesus, what are you doing? Perhaps his disciples on the way. Jesus, I mean, what are you doing, man? We're going to Nain. Who goes to Nain? Nothing ever happens in Nain. This is the only place in the entire Bible Nain is mentioned. This is the only thing that we know of that took place. We would have never even known about Nain if it hadn't been for this great miracle. It's 25 miles from Capernaum to Nain. That's a full day's journey on foot. That's a long day's journey on foot. But Jesus leaves his budding ministry at Capernaum to go to Nain. Why? Because it was the will of the Father for him to do so and meet up with a woman who had just lost everything. You don't think God cares about you as an individual? See yourself in the widow at Nain. Understand the gravity of this moment that Jesus left the budding ministry and the crowds and all that was taking place in Capernaum to go show up at Nain, according to the divine plan and purpose of the Father for one lady and those who would see this miracle as witnesses. It's powerful. Again, three uh, primary characters or groups of characters here. First of all, there are two swarms that meet up there at the gate at Nain. So they come there to the city, and, and a great crowd was with Jesus. They're following him from Capernaum, those 25 miles. And as he drew near to the gate of the, of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. And by the way, in those days, it wouldn't have been a closed coffin. It would have been more like a stretcher. That's what it means by a beer. It would have been a, an, open, an open coffin, if you will, an open stretcher that the body would have been carried to the cemetery for the purposes of burial. He was being carried out. The only son of his mother. Listen to the gravity of these words. And she was a widow. Translation, she'd lost everything. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her, mourning her loss. These two crowds meet at the city gate. Picture this. One of them following Jesus into the city. The other following this widow to the cemetery. By the way, this is a fitting analogy for the position of every one of us in this world. The reality for you today is you are in one of these two swarms. You are either following Jesus to the city that God is preparing for His people, that eternal city, the new Jerusalem that is laid out for us in the book of Revelation. You are either following Jesus to that eternal city whose builder and founder is God Himself, or you are following the other crowd. And you may not realize it, but you're already in the cemetery. To not follow Jesus means you are dead in your trespasses and sins. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And we say, well, yeah, that's off there somewhere. No, to really understand sin and to understand slavery to sin means you're already dead. 
You're already in the cemetery, and the only hope for you is the only hope that was for this young man. The only hope for you, if you do not know Jesus Christ, and if you are still dead in your trespasses and sins, the only hope for you is resurrection. Praise be to God, the author of life shows up and does what only he can do. And two sons come face to face in this moment. One, the very creator of life itself, and the other one, just another casualty of death. The wages of sin is death because we rebelled against God. Death came into the world and ruptured God's perfect creation. On Monday, we came together to celebrate the life of one of our own who God graced with 94 years in this world. But whether it's 94 or 104, however long uh, we might seek to live, death will come to every one of us unless Jesus comes and splits wide the sky before that day comes. Hebrews 9 says it's a point for each of us once to die and then the judgment. We will stand before a holy God one day and have to give an account for our lives. And the only question that will matter is what did you do with Jesus? Did you follow him or did you reject him? These two sons come face to face. And then Jesus does the unthinkable. Again, you don't touch a dead man's coffin. That makes you unclean. You don't go into the home of a Gentile that makes you unclean. You don't touch a leper that makes you unclean. All these things that would make you unclean. And Jesus does every one of them because he is the author of life. He is the Lord over all of these things. There is nothing that could make him unclean because he is holy, holy, holy is perfect in his holiness and so he steps into this moment in the gravity of this grief and he does the unthinkable why did they pause there in the street in this funeral procession because some dude that we've not seen before showed up and he came up and touched the dead man you don't do that unless you're jesus and then jesus says something that makes absolutely no sense how do you say to a grieving widow who's just lost her only son, do not weep? It seems heartless. That seems like the most heartless thing that you could say, and it would be. It would be so heartless except for what Jesus is about to do. Because what he's really saying to her is, woman, there's no reason to weep. So we have two swarms, two sons, and then face to face we have these two sufferers again we cannot grasp the gravity of this woman's destitution she was now the lowest of the low she had lost literally everything would have no means to provide for herself she might as well throw herself into the grave with the body of her son there was no recourse for her. Just You can think uh, about Naomi in the book of Ruth having lost her husband and her sons. She goes back to Jerusalem to die. There's no reason to continue on. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. That name means, means pleasant. Instead, call me Mari. Just go ahead and call me bitter because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. I have nothing left to live for. 
course, you remember what God did in those days. And so we see the heart of compassion of our Savior here. Calling the young man to rise up. And his body that was created by this same one, Jesus, rises up according to the command of his Lord. What else could he do? When Jesus says to Lazarus in John chapter 11, come out of the tomb, Lazarus isn't going, hey, hey, Lord, give me a minute. No, he comes out, doesn't he? Don't you notice that those who are touched by the power of God do exactly what the Lord of life tells them to do? When Jesus says to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand, he doesn't say, oh Lord, I can't do it. No, he stretches out his hand because the Lord of life has caused that hand to operate as he designed it once again. When Jesus says to the leper that he's healed, go and show yourself to the priest to confirm your healing, he goes and shows himself to the priest because it's an obedience that's spurred on by recognizing the Lord of life is in the house. And what he says I will do. And so here's his command for us, church. Colossians chapter 3. So put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's his definition. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you are God's chosen ones. He chose you. You didn't choose him. You never would have, by the way. I never would have. God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on compassionate hearts. That's number one. Put on kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Bear with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What's he describing here? He's describing the heart of Christ. The heart of Christ is the heart of compassion. It's been said that compassion is your pain in my heart. I think it's a great definition. When it says Jesus had compassion on her, there are three different words that are translated compassion in the Greek language. This one means to be stirred up in your inward parts, in the deepest part of you, who you are, for there to be a stirring. Have you ever experienced the kind of suffering that literally makes you sick to your stomach? That's what it says happened with Jesus here. As he looked upon this widow who's now lost her only son, he was moved with compassion in his deepest, most inward parts. He was stirred up. And then he responded. And by the way, church, that's the call upon our lives. If we're going to be followers of Jesus, perhaps we need to follow him in some of these difficult things. So let me close this morning just by sharing real quickly. How do we become a safe place for the suffering? That's what I see with Jesus here. He was a safe place for a Roman centurion to call upon him and ask him to come and to heal his dying servant. He was a safe place for a weeping widow. How can we be a safe place for the suffering rather than just building our comfortable little cocoons? How can we be a safe place for the suffering? First of all, it begins where it began for Jesus. We first have to see the hurting. Notice what it says there. Jesus saw her. Verse 13. 
And when he saw her, he had compassion on her. One of the reasons why we so often lack in compassion is because we don't see the hurting. Why do we not see the hurting? Because so often our sight is completely taken up with self. See, that's how Jesus was, Jesus was so different from us. There was no self-focus for him. He was always looking to the needs of others. And so when he came to the gate of Nain, he recognized immediately why he was there. He saw the suffering widow immediately and immediately was drawn into compassion. But the first thing that we have to pray is, Lord, give us eyes to see the suffering around us. Get us out of our comfortable cocoons and give us eyes to see what you see. To see the marriages that are falling apart. To see the children that are acting out in rebellion. To see those who are hungry and in need of clothes and in need of shelter. Help us to see what we're not seeing in our comfortable little cocoons. To get us out of the comfort zone and send us into the mission field where it's difficult. Where it's painful. We've got to see the suffering. We have to acknowledge their need. So when he says to her, Woman, do not weep, which again would be heartless except for what he's about to do. There's no need to go on weeping, but he acknowledged in that moment that the weeping was fully justified. It just didn't need to last. Acknowledging the need in front of him, we need to do the same. Thirdly, it involves feeling their pain. Again, compassion, your pain in my heart to truly feel to be moved in our inward parts. To be sickened by the effects of sin, both in our own lives and the lives of others. To be sickened by the suffering we see, recognizing that all suffering is the result of a sin-broken world. Because we rebelled against God, His righteous hand of protection over the world was pulled back, and the effects of sin have ruptured everything. feeling their pain, and finally engaging in compassionate action. Now, here's what we'll do. Maybe it's just me, but here's our tendency. We look at a passage of Scripture like this and say, well, but wait a minute, Pastor. I can't raise the dead. I can't even heal somebody on their deathbed like the first passage, much less raise the dead. I can't do this, so I get to opt out, right? Now, here's what it means to engage in compassionate action. Do what you can do. Jesus would say in another place, even a cup of cold water offered in my name is a compassionate action. It demonstrates the heart of God. So you may not raise the dead, but you may be there in the moment of death in a way that provides a comfort that comes straight from the heart of God. That's called the ministry of presence. You, you may not be able to heal the sick, but you may be able to take them some chicken noodle soup. Do what you can do. Do you, do you see it? It, it, there's a simplicity to this. Sometimes we, we think because I can't do all the things that Jesus can do, then, then that, that means I get to opt out of engaging with the suffering. And what he's called you to is not to do what he can do. That's his job. He has called you to do what you can do. It's the same thing in evangelism. He has not called you to save anybody because you can't. 
What has he called you to do? To share the gospel. That he might save others. And the same thing is true here. It's little steps of obedience that are spurred on by our final question for the morning. It's this. Church, are we compelled by our king's compassion? Are we compelled by the reality that he took our pain to his heart? Are we compelled by the fact that he who knew absolutely no sin of his own took all of our sin upon himself at the cross so that through him we might become the righteousness of God? Are we compelled by his compassion for us so much so that we recognize that his compassion is not just for us, it's meant for us, but also it's meant so much so for others? That we might see their suffering and acknowledge their need and feel their pain and then engage in compassionate action, doing what He has given us to do. It may seem small and inconsequential, but God loves to take little offerings and multiply them to His glory. But it begins with asking God, would you give me a heart like Jesus? Break my heart for what breaks yours. And in that, the church becomes powerful. In a culture that is obsessed with our comfortable little cocoons, when we break out of the cocoon and begin to engage with the hurting, the gates of heaven open wide. And a lot of glory begins to shine. And lives are changed and people grow in their love for Jesus because they've seen the love of Jesus through God's people. May that be true of us.